thought it was an amazing. I thought it was a surprisingly good tournament in the end. Um, all my expectations pre-tournament were for there to be pretty negative football. Players were pretty tired. Um, you know, a general kind of football fatigue. I think, um, but in the end, actually, it turned out to be pretty pretty entertaining, much more than I thought it would be. I I agree. I thought some of the like that, that even in the group stages, I think it was that Germany Portugal game was just spectacular. Um, and then I'm trying to remember if it was the I think the yeah the Italy semi final was of, I thought was off the Richter scale as well in just terms of um, performance levels generally. So I there was some there was some incredible games, and I'm just going to preempt you by saying that. Um, yeah, my um, predictions weren't quite as good as yours, Omar. I think it's fair to say. Well, I think we were both. I mean, it was a, almost a reflection of the tournament. We were chatting about it beforehand, and we, we got Burrell, one of my colleagues on the show, and you can listen to the podcast back and listen to all the predict, various predictions that were made. But we got him on the show, and he'd obviously done a lot more homework than we had uh, beforehand. But we put in our predictions. I don't think either of us had really done that much studying of the teams. And as I say, I think it was a reflection of our initial interest in the tournament and uh, Danny went for the boring choice with France which to be honest I think if they'd won that penalty shootout I think they probably still would have gone on to win the tournament um, such as the nature of international tournaments um, and I massively shot from the hip and went Spain um, which they were a shootout away from making the final so I, I'm feeling a little bit smug um, but uh, I, I won't admit well I won't um confess to have done a huge amount of research out of that prediction the thing was also that that spain team um as much as it maybe you know lacked a little bit of cutting edge right up top after um Murata, but um pedri and olimo were just spectacular i don't know what you had any thoughts on obviously them pre-tournament but i i obviously heard a little bit about pedri obviously being in and around the the barca team but Olomo especially, like his stamina and ability to get on the ball in between the lines and playing multiple positions across the the front, I thought he was just on a different level um, towards the end of the tournament. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that, it, that Italy game, I think a lot of the time people struggle to accept, I think at the end of the tournament, is there's often a feeling that the team that deserved to win the tournament uh, won the tournament. Um but actually, I think that Spain game against Italy, Spain was the better team in that game and, and probably deserved to go through. And obviously, we'd, we'd be talking about a potentially very different narrative now. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Pedri and Olmo in that game were phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, one of the the things as someone who's kind of, I guess, involved in numbers and statistics, as you reflect on a tournament, I think the main thing you often reflect on is you know, how much luck and randomness was involved in it. And there's obviously a lot of talk about England obviously not just having home advantage, but the draw opening up um, for England. And I think that obviously played a big part, um, you know, in their route to the final. But it, I honestly think, even as I reflect back on the tournament, any one of four or five teams could have gone and won, up, could have gone and won it, um, which I think is, is probably a reflection of a good tournament. You know, I think of the ones that Spain won in 2010 and 2012, and I don't think they were really memorable tournaments, partly because... You know, Spain was so good. The final, well, particularly the twenty twelve final, wasn't so great. Um, but I think the fact that you there was genuine uncertainty in the tournament until you know in each of the stages, I think made for a really really good competition. And also a bit of a shout out to Aurel as well because he actually said, if I remember correctly, 
that um, Denmark would go deep because of home advantage and because of potentially the draw. And, you know, they weren't too far away from reaching the final either, in truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think they they were probably a couple of bad substitutions away from doing that as well when they took Damsgaard off um, and, and Dolberg off in the semi-final. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of entertaining football. A nice, um, in a way, actually, this takes us on to the club game now, next part of our discussion but I almost found it a bit of a nice antidote to club football um, in some ways I think club football back, back end of last season there were a couple of good title races to be fair more, more so than what we've perhaps had in recent years um, but there was still the kind of stench of the Super League at the back end of the season um, you know and there's there's always this um, tribalism I think that comes with club football um, that can be quite uh, yeah, distasteful sometimes, but I but I think what this tournament had is that you had, as I say, you know, four or five teams that genuinely could have won it. Whereas in club football, a lot of the time we're, we're looking at one or two teams running away with the league. Um, and, and so I found it, you know, with the high goals per game and everything like that, I, I found it a nice, um, nice little break. And it's nice to have a couple of weeks off now before uh, the club football resumes, and I'll forget everything that I dislike about club football again. And I think, Omar, on that note, we can um, we can avoid talking about... The, I mean, we, I used the B word like Brexit was the bad thing that I couldn't help talking about. I think we can probably avoid the P word, which is penalties for um, for this session, and then we can maybe have a, a deconstruction later down the line on um, on that, perhaps, should oh, anyone yeah, actually ever sure. want to talk about that ever again in life. For sure. <laughs> that, that'll, that'll take a few months for me, but we, we, can, we can get there. Um, but yeah, we wanted to chat uh, Europa Conference League, um, which... Uh, is a new competition, often viewed with a lot, a lot of sniffiness, I think, in, in England, but has a lot of merits, I think, uh, and, and the away goals rule as well. So what, what order should we tackle it in, Dan? I think let's go Conference League first, because I'm keen on um, getting a bit more insight into it generally. And then I think, you know, I think a lot of people will have some thoughts on the away goals rule and, and that sort of UEFA abolition and talking through the politics and the practicalities of it, I think. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, the, the Conference League, I think there was a lot of talk at the back end of the Premier League season about you know which team was going to finish seventh. Um, in the end, it was Spurs and, and going into the, the Conference League and this kind of mocking of the fact that you know, you'll know you be playing, I don't know, the second-place team in Lithuania or the, the fourth-place team in Czech Republic or whatever it is. Um, and I, I, I understand in some respects the, the sniffiness that comes from the major associations, given that the Europa League itself is already seen as a bit of a kind of B-rate competition. Um, but it, this competition isn't really for um, for the major associations. It's really for some of the smaller associations. Uh, and let's not forget, I think, one of the big trends in, in club football in the last 10, 15, 20 years or so is the lack of trophies that are available for clubs to win because... You know, historically, you might have had a league winner and then a cup winner might have come from nowhere because it's very difficult for the best team in the, the league to win the cup as well. Uh, but increasingly, you're seeing this kind of monopolisation of, of trophies from a small number of clubs. Um, and so I, for the big associations, I don't think that, that'll be something to be sniffed at. I think it, it should be something that they should be should be looking at as a trophy to win like a Spurs. Uh, but for the small associations, um, it's interesting. Really, there was a good piece in The Guardian earlier this week that was talking to... Um, I think some teams from Ireland um, as well as from some other kind of smaller associations in Europe that see it as a great opportunity potentially to go on a European run um, and even better still qualify for the group stages where the prize money is not insignificant it's about 3 million euros for a 
group stage uh, qualifier. Um, and in the Europa League, it's about 3.5, 3.6 million um, for a group stage qualifier. So actually, the prize money between the two competitions isn't all that different. Um, if you look at the way that the qualifying splits out a bit, um, you tend to get teams from the latter qualifying stage of the Champions League falling into the Europa League. There's actually very few teams that qualify directly for the Europa League. It'll be a sort of... Um, still like it, it kind of what it is in the latter stage of the Europa League at the moment, almost like a, a B-level competition for for the major associations, plus a few perhaps champions from from the minor associations. Uh, but the Conference League will be will be um, dominated by those kind of mid and bottom ranking association um, uh, teams. Uh, hopefully, a few league winners. I think that's been one of the thing things that's frustrated clubs and small leagues that you win your league and you don't even really get a proper sniff of playing at European competition because there's so many places that go to uh, the big four, big five leagues or so. Um, so it's really opening up that that competition for small associations and I think it's a good thing. I think there's there'll be loads of really good stories that, that emerge from it. Um, that there'll be, and we can get onto this in a sec, but I think it'll be a really interesting scouting opportunity for, for clubs and leagues um, and of course, from an analytical perspective, it gives us a better sense of of the level of teams in different leagues, which is something that um, we do a lot of uh, of analysing. So, whilst I'm not going to pretend I'm going to be watching loads of games from the Conference League, I think it will be. I think it's a good competition for Europe um, for European teams. There'll be questions around the implications of competitive balance and redistribution of money and so on. But but I think on the whole, it's a pretty positive move. And the more clubs we can have playing in European competitions, I think is um, is not a bad thing. I know, Mark, and that's just one of the points as well, just um, in terms of timing, is will conference and, and Europa overlap on the Thursday? Is that the idea? And if it will, do you know if it's like scheduling to have particular differential TV slot timings or is it just going to mirror the same slots? I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here as, um, as, as the Europa League or is that sort of... <laughs> You are putting me on the spot. Sorry. I am actually not absolutely certain... Um... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it will be a Thursday night um, thing. I suspect they'll try and uh, split the the timings as much as possible. But the biggest cha- the challenge with you know with midweek football for um, for associations is that, and for for UEFA is that there's only really one time slot on midweeks, which is you know, kind of roughly 8 p.m. kickoff. I remember in the Champions League last season there was a lot of complaints. I think it was at the quarterfinal stage that games were kicking off. Or they were having two games kick off at the same time in the quarterfinals, and whilst understood it was frustration for some fans, I think the, um, the the rationale for it is that no broadcaster really wanted their team being uh, the team from their country playing at six pm. So if you were, uh, I think there was one evening where it was Liverpool, Real Madrid, and maybe Man City, Dortmund, um, and basically you know the Spanish broadcaster wouldn't want the Madrid game at at 6pm the, the German broadcaster wouldn't want the Dortmund game at 6pm and, and the BT probably wouldn't want Liverpool at 6pm either so I, I suspect there will be a few kind of scheduling issues um, that the um, broadcasters will have to try and get around and will sacrifice audiences here and there but yeah it's going to be a, a lot of kind of swiping down your, a long list of life scores I think you'll be swiping down on Thursday evenings It was interesting as well I was uh, just looking at one other point, which was um, just thinking about whether those broadcasters have paid additional amounts for um, the conference league. So, if you'd have been, if you were the rights holder, uh, sorry, the the broadcaster that bought the rights for Champions League and Europa League, 
whether actually in practice this was almost like a not a freebie but you know a lot of extra content to put on their platform at not that much extra cost or whether actually there was a, another tender process for for that I, i'm just thinking out loud again but i'm, I'm not I'm, do, do you have any visibility on how that actually even happened? yes we're into a new rights cycle so the reason that i guess the conference league starting is we're in a new rights cycle um i suspect i don't know this for sure but i suspect the it's been promoted and as a means for UEFA to generate greater revenue in perhaps some of the smaller European markets um, who, that where there's probably already a decent demand for Champions League football, watching the best players and so on. Um, but if you're, I don't know, a Hungarian broadcaster or a Romanian broadcaster, you know there's a better chance of your, your, one of your teams or your biggest team playing European competition, then there's a greater chance that you'll have more viewers for those games and it's more attractive competition. I suspect in the major markets, it is very much additional content. You know, I, I don't think Spurs, for example, playing in the Europa Conference League is going to drive greater subscriptions for, for BT Sport, as an example. But uh, I, I suspect, yeah, we'll, we'll probably see some numbers over time, seeing what the um, how the prize, how the increased revenue shakes out for UEFA. But I suspect for the small associations, it's, um, it's proven an interesting competition. Yeah, and interesting on the trickle-down competitive um, balance side of things and redistribution, I guess, um, as we talked about more generally for Champions League and Europa League and how that fits in with domestic um, league revenues, but which is probably something for another day. But in, in turning, I guess, to one of the things that you've got a pretty, um, well, s- strong or, um, you know, pretty uh, important views on was, you know, the announcement not so long ago about... Um, UEFA deciding um, against prolonging the the away goals rule, i.e., scrapping the away goals rule. I I guess for the obviously for the the, the season that's and the qualifiers that have just effectively started. And we we were talking in preparation to this about how, in my mind, some of the most iconic games um, that I can remember over a particular period of time have all, in a way, had the drama of the swings of away goals or sometimes actually the the opposite that the the non-swing but the consequence of the potential swing of away goals in uh, in certain second legs um and so i i recall you know you writing about writing a really interesting thread on on twitter about it so i'd be you know fascinated in your sort of um yeah, much more informed views on um on where this has come from and 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 probably what it now means for for competitions and whether it actually does in a, a sort of halfway benefit the 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 bigger clubs now or not yeah it's uh it feels like a very small hill to die on the away goals rule but it is something i i genuinely believe you know i'm, I'm quite passionate about sport and sport being constructed and manufactured in a way that that is entertaining and um you know, generates joy for fans, and I think I, I genuinely believe the UA goals rule did that really well. Um, I did a really good—I well, said did a really good podcast. I did a long podcast with uh, with Michael Cox, um, uh, the um, the mixer podcast. I forget what what, he, um, what the podcast called on on this a few years ago now. Um, but it's important to remember what the away goals rule was originally designed for. It was um, matches used to be decided by coin toss. They used to play two legs and if it was still tied the player re- a third leg at a neutral venue and then they'd do a coin toss uh, and clearly that was not a sustainable way of um, deciding tied matches so UEFA the first the, the way they decided to do the tie break was try to come up with a way that was fair you know had both teams had an opportunity to do it you know it wasn't just oh, the second team playing at home or, or something like that 
they, they went with, okay, who scores the most away goals over the two games? And it wasn't, I think a lot of people think it was originally designed as a means to try and create more interesting attacking football. It wasn't. It was, that was the secondary benefit of it. And actually, it didn't really prove to be the case. Teams didn't actually, away teams didn't actually score more goals than the introduction of the away goals rule. But it acted as, as a tiebreak. Uh, now, you could argue that, you know, once penalty shootouts were um, created, if you like, so this was back in the early 60s, once penalty shootouts were created, then you could have easily scrapped the away goals rule because you then had a tiebreaker. Um, but I think, for me, what it created, the away goals rule, was this, um, you know, dramatic knife-edge football that you just don't get anywhere else. Um, you know, in, in football the most a goal can do is turn a defeat into a draw or a draw into uh, a win. And, you know, we saw in, in the Euro, if you just take the Euros, there was no one goal that had the same dramatic value as, um, you know, some of the goals that we've seen, some of the away goal deciding goals that we've seen over over the years, whether it's Manolas's goal or whether it's, um, oh, can I forget, the, the, uh, the, the Barcelona, the, the um, sixth goal against um, PSG. Uh, moments like that where you go from going out to in an instant going through you know if you think about um, some of the goals like Morata's against um, against Italy which was late on in the game all it did was that the game wasn't was going to extra time and, and you know wasn't coming to it wasn't like a massive swing it was just kind of resetting the score if you like um, and there's an argument that um, feel free to jump in Dan if, you, if I'm boring or, or there's a particular point you want to jump in on but if you um if you look at um extra time you know a lot of people argued well it's unfair in extra time because the away team gets more time to score an away goal uh, but actually the numbers showed that it perfectly offset home advantage um and now in the post away goal scenario we've got a situation where teams that are playing um away from home or sorry at home in the second leg have 120 minutes to score uh, goals, at, you know, have 120 minutes at home, whereas an away team only has 90 minutes at home. So, I, I in many ways, it's even more skewed. Um, and then, just finally, yeah, the um, the um, extra more extra time periods. I just, I just don't think there are many good extra time periods in general. Um, I think we saw that again at the Euros. Uh, okay, international was a bit different, end of a long season, and so on. Um, but generally, extra time not great. Um, whereas you know, 90 minutes of football, which could swing either way, is, is a lot more entertaining. So, yeah, I'm sad to see it go. I, I can't see it returning anytime soon, if at all, really. I think it's, uh, my, my understanding is like it's a decision that's kind of a bit one and done now. So, it's sad to go, but I I, um, I look forward to, to people complaining about boring extra time periods uh, over the coming years and, and wishing the away goals rule was coming back. <laughs> Well, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Because so do you think, and obviously the data will out in the end, so does this mean that attack that home teams might be more willing to attack because the consequence of not, and i.e. sitting back because of the worry of an away goal, might lead uh, to more goals in extra time or second legs potentially? Or will it lead to more stalemate and potentially penalties then increasing as a, a ratio of um, uh, extra time to penalties or extra time to results? Yeah, so on 
if you look at the numbers, the, the number of nil-nils in the first leg, which you might expect and you know, when there's the away goals rule, because home teams don't want to concede and generally, you know, a draw away from home is a good result. Um, they're, they're no more or less they happen no more or less frequently than what you would expect based on the quality of teams. Um, so so what you might expect now actually is I, I think in my view you might even see more um, teams settling, particularly uh, you, you may end up seeing more nil nils in the first leg or, or um, roughly the same. Um, I, I just think it's not the away goals rule. It has never been successful at opening teams up um, away from home. It's never been. It's never had a massive impact on tactics in a game. Um, it's just been a really entertaining tiebreaker, and I think that's what people should enjoy. And I understand why people don't like it because you end up with um, you know the same amount of goals over. 180 minutes why is it that one team's going out and one team's going through I, I sort of get that argument um, but I also think well look, look at tennis in tennis matches sometimes you get players who win more points that lose the match um, and no one goes after those there have been Grand Slam finals that have been like that with you know pretty epic Grand Slam finals that have been like that with between the, the big three in tennis and no one's gone after that game well Nadal won more points there and he's lost the game that's desperately unfair you know we need to move to a a point scoring system that that's more fair in tennis. No one ever says that. So I, I think um, I think sometimes a little bit of unfairness in sport can actually increase entertainment. And I think the away goals were already provided that. So then can I ask maybe one more question as well, Omar? And guys, if anybody has any particular questions they'd like to um, ask ask us on this particular topic, it'd be great to hear from everybody. But um, do you think then that it has there been a policy reason or a political reason or anything that you can sort of eke out from reading and then being involved in various discussions as to then why this has come about? Is it because the bigger clubs want greater, you know, that the, is it that bigger clubs are more likely to play the second game, the second leg at home because they're more likely to have second leg home advantage which then puts them in a more precarious away goals position which therefore leads to greater um the greater possibility of being dumped out and therefore the way of avoiding away goals actually creates greater predictability of results for the bigger teams or am i just overgeneralizing something um that that, that isn't there no i think i think that's a fair point i mean i you look at um one of the major away goals rule results in the season just gone. It was Porto beating Juventus um, in the second round where, you're absolutely right, Juventus were seeded for that game. Uh, Porto, um, you know, probably went into that tie as underdogs. And the rationale, I'm sure Juventus would have been feeling after that game as well. You know, Porto had uh, an extra uh, an extra 30 minutes to get an away goal. Now, last season is, is actually a terrible season for by which to kind of assess the way goals rule because you had, you know, these really funky scenarios where either one game was at a neutral venue but a team was categorised at home or, you know, there were no fans in stadiums and all that. And I think, you know, obviously Juventus playing at home with, with no supporters is less home advantage. And yes, Porto probably had a pretty good um, advantage in that scenario. And actually there would have been a very good case last season for scrapping the away goals rule just for last season and bringing it back um, as fans return to stadiums. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think there is um, a feeling that um, a couple of notable European teams were dumped out by the away goals rule, um, and, and therefore it may be uh, maybe a time for change. 
Um, and also, I mean, a final point, the away goals rule does have slightly more upsets um, uh, than than a game that's um, without the away goals rule if you do the modelling on it. So, you know, again, uh, as, a, as a kind of one of the bigger teams in European football, you would obviously rather not have as many upsets in European football. You'd rather have the, the better team going through or, or, or giving more minutes to the for a chance for the best team to go through. So, yeah, a few a few machinations going on there, I think. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, as I say, it's a shame. And I think, I, I think we will struggle to have memories that are as memorable as what we've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever we can remember in, in European football as, as what we'll have going forward now. No, really interesting stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess on that point... It, it's an interesting one for me just because the way goals rule is set is now I, I don't know whether it's for our generation or otherwise it's pretty ingrained in the um in the, the structural remit of the of the club cup competitions that we that we see so i've seen it for example am i right i can't remember Omar. is it is it the carabao cup that don't have away goals now either if i remember correctly for last yeah season? they they well they for a while had a weird well, actually, in many ways, a good rule where it counted an extra time. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's very few competitions that don't have it, uh, and it's almost a bit jarring when they don't. Yeah. So it just it just made me think now is that does you know actually for the attractiveness of the product, if we're not talking about sort of fairness and otherwise and all the rest of it, but actually exactly as you write, sort of the attractiveness of the product is it diminished in the fact that now these sort of spectacular. Um, you know, moments that can turn a, a second leg tie on its head are likely to be much more fewer and far between, which I, I don't know. Obviously, the broadcasters don't have a say in all of this, but you'd have thought that, um, you know, commentators not being able to exclaim or screen the virtues of a, a really important transcendent goal, um, you know, ultimately, again, doesn't provide for those memories that you would otherwise have possibly had, had the structure been put in a certain way. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it is diminished, um, and yeah, I, I just I, I think it'll be interesting to poll fans in five years' time to go. Okay, well, what are your all-time, maybe as a neutral, what are your all-time you know favourite Champions League, Europa League ties? And I think we'll find that that a lot of them were the ones that were decided by by the away goals rule and had that tension at the end. You know, when when Liverpool played Barcelona, when so that Trent and Origi corner. That put Liverpool 4-0 up but there was huge jeopardy at the end of that game because Liverpool knew that Barcelona scored they were going out um, so it wasn't you know it didn't, never felt comfortable at any stage and, and in many ways made the comeback all the more remarkable um, so yeah we'll, uh, we'll have to see uh, I'll probably be crunching some numbers to see what um, to see how the, the rule has, has impacted you know score, score lines of games and so on I think it'll be quite interesting especially want to track Omar, I can always rely on you to have a Liverpool win as the basis for everyone's lusting memory of the of the talk. Nice one. All right, Dan. Well, we'll uh, we'll catch up next week. Thanks, everybody, and speak again. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts 
multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.